Success Stories is presented by TheConstantInvestor.com. I'm Alan Kohler, and every week my writing and podcasts put the financial world in context with a focus on the issues that matter. As a member of The Constant Investor, you can also access our exclusive Facebook group where I'll answer your questions directly. Join us today. It's just a dollar for the first month. Now here's Catherine Robson with a success story. Rachel Robertson spent nearly six months in complete darkness as the leader of a year-long expedition to Antarctica. She has used her experience and subsequent MBA to become the preeminent expert on extreme leadership. She's a best-selling author and Australia's most sought-after female speaker, but her scariest experience was starting her own business. I'd love to say it was a, a planned approach, but it wasn't. It was really looking for opportunities and when I graduated from uni, I left university with a um, degree in public relations and I started working in an office in PR and hated it and just hated it and woke up thinking, oh, you know, I've studied for three years to get this job and I really, it's not what I thought. And the park rangers would come into the office and I'd see them and they were really happy and I thought, I want to be happy too. I want a job that makes me happy. So I thought, why can't I be a park ranger? And so I did. I applied for a job as a park ranger, became a park ranger, and that's how I ended up working outdoors. But and it's it was... the antithesis of PR, really. Like, you know, PR <laughs> yes. seems like glamour and high parties, heels. correct, high heels. <laughs> park ranger, completely different. It is, although the skills were transferable. That's what fascinated me, and that was a big learning for me, I guess, early on, that the skills of PR, so the ability to write, um, the ability to talk to people, all those PR skills are also necessary for park rangers. We need to be able to talk to the public and, and welcome them to the parks and, and be calm in a crisis, which PR teaches you as well. So they were really transferable skills, but I didn't really know that at the time. And you were very successful as a ranger, so you became Victoria's chief ranger. Yep. How did you manage to accelerate your way through that field um, given that you hadn't come from a biology background, yeah. you know, as you say, there were some transferable skills, but how did you manage to advance so rapidly? Yeah, and it's important because most rangers do have a Bachelor of Science in Environmental Management. But what I did, which was different, I decided to take opportunities that other people didn't want. So, for example, a lot of the people in Melbourne wanted to stay in Melbourne. They didn't want to work out in the regions, whereas I thought, well, I'll go and work out in the regions. And I was fortunate that I was single and didn't have children, so I could make the decision to go wherever I wanted without having to consult with anyone. And so I took all these jobs, all in, in you know, regional Victoria, Mildura, Warrnambool, Ballarat, you name it. I, I moved there, didn't know anyone, just moved there. And two things, it, it gave me the skills I needed, the management skills to lead teams, but equally important, it put me on the radar of the executive team. So the CEO and the other exec team members knew that there was this 20-something-year-old woman who was prepared to have a crack at things and was, you know, quite ambitious and willing to jump in. And I think that that was what really helped my career. Now, I understand you don't really like snow <laughs> or cold. So what on earth prompted you to put your hand up to lead an expedition to Antarctica? Oh, no. Oh, my goodness. It was an advertisement in a newspaper and I was just sitting there flicking through the newspaper, the careers section, mind you, on a Saturday morning, and I saw a, a picture of some penguins, which is kind of weird in the careers section. That's what caught my eye. And when I looked at the ad, they were recruiting for personal attributes like empathy, resilience, integrity. And I just thought that was a fantastic idea to recruit people who had the qualities for the job, not the technical. And I thought, wow, I wonder how they do that. So I started wondering, well, what questions will they be asking at the job interview? And to find out if you've got resilience. So the only reason I applied was to actually 
get to the interview stage to find out what the questions were and I was going to copy them and bring them back to my organisation. Uh, it was only once I'd applied that I learnt they don't have a job interview. It's actually a week-long boot camp in the central highlands of Tasmania. So I've accidentally ended up on this boot camp with 13 men competing for this job. And, it, and I honestly didn't think I'd get the job. But when they rang and offered it to me, I thought, you know what, I'd rather regret what I did than regret what I didn't do. And so that's the only reason I took the job. <laughs> Were you Australia's first female expedition leader to Antarctica? I was, there's been a couple before me, but I was the second woman at Davis Station and, and one of, certainly one of the youngest. I mean, just thinking about spending a year, part of which is completely in the dark, completely cold, yeah. completely inaccessible, was it as hard as what it, you'd think from the outside? Interesting. Parts were harder than what I thought. The parts that other people might find hard, like we, um, for example, had a plane crash and I had to manage the search and rescue following a, a plane crash. But as a park ranger and a bush firefighter, I'm, I'm trained in emergency and crisis management. So I actually, I knew that we're trained in this. And so there's certain things that you have to do and there's a very laid out plan that you have to do when there's an emergency. So that bit didn't faze me. What was harder was the scrutiny of the leadership role, which every leader, we know that we're being watched, but to have it 24 hours a day, I was totally not prepared for the fact that I might sleep in on a Sunday morning and come down for breakfast at 10am and that would be noted. People would comment and say, oh boss, you know, you've slept in and it's like, oh my goodness. So the intensity and the spotlight of the leadership role was something I was totally unprepared for. It was you and how many other people and what roles did they have? It's really fascinating. It's very different summer and winter. Summer, there was 120 people and they're all your scientists doing climate change work. And, and so there's, it's really busy. It's 24 hours of daylight. We work 16 hours a day. It's crazy. I loved it. Winter, and you were responsible for, <laughs> and I'm responsible for the whole lot. Yeah, yeah. So delivering our, our science program, delivering our capital works program, the ongoing maintenance, as well as the safety of 120 people. Then about February, they go home and there's 18 of us stay behind. So myself and 17 others stay behind and we maintain the station throughout the winter until the next summer. So then the job becomes a lot more around leadership and morale and, and building a team and, and a lot less around operations. And so it's quite a different different job, summer and winter. But uh, yeah, the, the 17 people, 24 hours of darkness, you know, it, it's tough. And, and I didn't recruit them. It's like a normal job. I got given this team and told make it work. So it, it was a tough gig in winter. The things that they were testing for at the boot camp in Tasmania, so resilience and integrity, how did that manifest itself for you while you're in that really intense six months of darkness? It's Yeah, it's funny. One of the things I remember them doing in the boot camp was we had to we had to critique the other applicants and we had to say so give feedback to say, you know, you did this really well, but I would suggest you did this. So you're actually competing with someone, but you also then had to be a mentor. We had to mentor someone in that shortlist. But it proved to the selection panel that we could have the tough conversations and I think probably my legacy for the team, if I had to pick one, would be that I coached them in that ability. So right from the start, we had no triangles, which is I don't speak to Catherine about you or you don't speak to me about her. If I have something to say, we go direct to the person. And that direct conversations took pressure off me, but it also built respect in the team. And I think 
the reason it took so long, it took about two months to embed it in our culture, but that was because I had to coach the team on how to have those conversations because Australians, we, we avoid them. We don't like those confronting conversations. It's easier to, to whinge to a third party. But I thought, I can't live in that environment for a year and, and it will exhaust me and it really will test my resilience. So I had to find a way, how am I going to get this team addressing each other directly rather than coming running to me the whole time? And I think that was probably the, the simple most and single most important tool that we use down there. And the 17 people you were leading, what sort of people were they? What sort of work were they doing? What what responsibilities uh, and, and performance did you need to draw out of them? Really different jobs and very different personalities and that's what blew me away. And it's like every workplace but we had different – we had a couple of scientists but we mostly were tradespeople, so two electricians, two plumbers, two carpenters, a couple of diesel mechanics, a doctor, a chef, so very practical trades sort of people. But the ages were different, the gender, the sexuality, the stage of life. Some were uh, young and studying and others were at the retirement sort of stage of their careers and all thrown together <laughs> 24 hours a day where we can't get away from each other. And I think probably the biggest challenge was actually – thinking preferences and personalities. So your big picture storyteller living with your detailed, you know, finite um, data sort of brain and that was like your electrical engineer from Germany living with a plumber from Mudgee. You know, that was my biggest challenge and I thought how am I going to get this team working as a team when they've just got nothing in common? We didn't and yet we had to live together. We couldn't get away from each other and equally I couldn't I couldn't sack anyone or I couldn't send them home. So it was like, wow, I've got, I've got to get this team functioning somehow. You've uh, captured the essence of your experience in an absolutely fantastic book, uh, Leading on the Edge. And it sounds like a lot of the leadership philosophy you almost needed to make up. Um, it didn't seem like you had a lot of resource to draw on to, to take yourself off to a course, to upskill in <laughs> something or, you know, pick, yeah. you know, pick up a book. Um, were there formative experiences while you were there that, that shaped your leadership philosophy? Definitely the no triangles was when someone came to me and, and complained and I said, do you want me to speak to him about it? And they said, no, no, I'm just telling you. I'm like, oh, yeah, oh, I can't do this for a year. This will exhaust me. And I actually had this epiphany that if I don't speak to the person and you don't speak to the person, nothing will change and we'll be having this same conversation in two days' time. One of the others I had was... I'd always wonder why my time management was really dodgy when I had a corporate role because I was the first one in the office, last one out, missing lunch. I think we, lots of us can relate to that. And so I did every time management course, known to man, I did everything they tell you to do and it's still nothing changed. And when I got to Antarctica, I realised that all that time it wasn't my time management, it was actually my boundaries. And how I recognised it was the guys would come knocking on my bedroom door, you know, nine o'clock at night and I'd be reading a book and they'd say, oh, you know, you're reading your book. And I'd say, it's all right, I'll put my dressing gown on, I'll come out, it's okay. And I realised, wow, I can't sustain this for a year. I can't be available to you 24 hours a day, every day for a year. And I realised that in my corporate role, every time someone said to me, Rachel, have you got a minute? My default answer was always, yeah, sure, sure I do, even when I didn't have a minute. So because automatically I was going, yeah, sure, that was just my workload was just backing up, backing up, backing up while I was responding. And I, was, and I thought, you know what, I don't need to be automatically responsive. I need to use my judgment, like does this have to be answered now or can this, can this person wait? And so I learned, I had this moment where I thought, wow, it's not my time management, it's my boundaries. I actually have to manage my boundaries a lot better. And, it was, and did uh -huh. you develop those skills? Yes. 
Yeah, I did. And I actually was very explicit. And I said, I said to the guys, look, I think the next time it happened, I was having breakfast and they wanted me to sign a bit of paperwork to let them leave the station. <laughs> it was on a Sunday. And I actually said, no, I, I need to have my breakfast. Uh, I will have my breakfast and I will meet you over in my office in 15 minutes. How does that sound? And once I put the boundary there, they fully respected it. But prior to that, I had no boundaries. I'd never said, please don't come and knock on my bedroom door unless it's urgent, you know, or please don't interrupt breakfast. You know, it's important that all of us have meals and look after ourselves. And I'd never done that. I love that Bacon Wars story. (laughs) Are you able to capture that? The Bacon Wars, yeah, which I didn't even know was happening until they raised it. One of the the guys said, oh, we need to have a meeting to decide how to cook the bacon, whether it should be soft or crispy, because apparently the plumbers liked it soft and the diesel mechanics liked it crispy. But once I started asking a few questions, I discovered it actually wasn't about bacon, that the relationship between the two teams had broken down over the use of a vehicle and it was manifesting as the bacon because they thought the other team's deliberately cooking the bacon the opposite way. And I had this moment where I thought, wow, it's nothing to do with bacon, it's actually about respect. And I sort of had this flashback to all these other bacon wars I'd had in workplaces where uh, I thought, wow, that's what it was. So dirty coffee mugs is the classic. Um, People leaving stuff lying around, people who are always late for meetings and we tend to go, oh, that's that's just him or that's just her. No, that's just rude and disrespectful. And so I realise all these little things that happen in workplaces that irritate us and we think, oh, that's really irritating. The Bacon Wars was a big lesson for me. As I said, you've written an amazing book, but you're also one of Australia's most sought-after public speakers (laughs) to, to talk about your experiences but also to really explain by analogy so much of what we struggle with in a normal workplace mm, mm. because you've experienced a, a, a workplace on steroids, if you like, that just yep. highly intensified experience. How did you position yourself as a public speaker or did that just happen naturally? Yeah, and that's, that's a fantastic analogy. It, it is on steroids. It is under a microscope. So it's the same as any workplace, that you've got different professions, genders, ages, careers, you know, all working together. The difference with us is that we couldn't get away from each other, that we're stuck there, can't get out of the joint for a year. So that was the main difference. And and so when I got back to Australia, I think I did one presentation for my boss who'd given me leave without pay. He asked me to do a presentation for a charity and I said, yeah, sure. And in the audience was a guy from a speakers bureau, which I never didn't even know Australia had speakers bureaus. And he came up and said, would you like to, to do more of that? And I said, what, tell that story? And he said, yeah. He said, there's not enough leadership speakers in Australia who've actually led. He said there's a lot of academics who've studied leadership and there's a place for them, but we need more leadership speakers who've actually led. And he said, and there's very few female leadership speakers. So I thought, oh, yeah, I'll have a crack at this. You know, it could be, could be a laugh. I might get a few trips to Sydney or something out of it. And so I started doing breakfasts and dinners and then it just went gangbusters. And I think last year I did 119 events all around the world. So it just sort of took off. And I think what resonates with people is that it is a workplace, but it's just about putting really simple language around issues that we face in every workplace and actually giving people, like Bacon Wars, giving them the words and the language to actually circuit break some of these behaviours that happen in every workplace. And I think that's what's been the success of it, is the simple practical nature. When you talk about making that leap from actually leaving a job with a regular salary (laughs) to turning your story and leadership understanding into its own business. Mm. I was absolutely amazed that you said that that was as scary as that the whole concept of going to Antarctica and being responsible for such a big project. Why was that a scary choice? It was petrifying because it was walking away from a salary 
you know, and I've been working, gosh, 20, 20 something years by then in the workforce. So walking away from a, a guaranteed income and knowing that it was up to me then to actually generate my own revenue. And so I had to learn about running a business and I, I got a lot of advice. I got a business coach. I got coaches within the speaking industry. So I learned about the industry as well as, as running a business, but I had to learn how to run a business. I had to learn how to read a, um, a cash flow statement. I had to understand concepts of, you know, managing cash flow and actually understanding creditors and, and debits and all sorts of things that I've never had to worry about before. And that was really scary, but I, I got a lot of advice and that was probably the smartest thing I did was understanding it was a business. And then we sort of got to the stage where I was at capacity. I physically couldn't do any more speaking work. So then the challenge became, well, how do we scale the business when we can't replicate me? We have to make it scalable somehow to grow the business, but without having more Rachels running around. And so we had to look at product and actually coming up with, that's where the book came along and the video program. So coming up with products that we could sell as well to get cash flow, which didn't rely on me physically being somewhere. But gee, that was a steep learning curve, that one. <laughs> Why do you think your particular story has resonated and, and you've been able to grow it into an ongoing business? Yeah, and I have thought about that too a lot myself thinking, because I don't think I've got anything particularly special. So what is it? And I think one of the things I did that in hindsight was really smart, but at the time it wasn't strategic. The um, psychologist who did my debrief, we have a debrief on the way home, she said to me, you need a new challenge. You'll come off the back of this high and you might get depressed. So think of a new challenge. So I actually went back to uni and did my MBA. I thought, right, I, I know the leadership stuff, got that down pat. I need to learn some more business skills. So I went back and did my MBA. But that the knowledge and the skills from the MBA what I learned from that was just, oh gosh, I can't even put a price on it. It was just amazing. And so I've structured the, the presentation now that when I originally started, I'd just tell the story and 90% of people go, oh, yeah, great story. It's really interesting. But you'll always get a certain percentage doing the so what test and going, yeah, great story, but so what? How does it apply to me? And so the MBA, along with 10 years experience, has, has made me sharpen my messages so that it's, it's very formulaic. There's a story, an insight, application, story, insight, application. And the audience won't see that because it's done in a very sort of informal, casual way, but it's deliberate. It's very deliberate. And I learned to get longevity out of the story, I needed to have business messages. I needed to have very tangible takeaway specific tools that people could get from hearing me present rather than just a story because we for, you know, we'll forget the story. So I, that was probably the biggest difference is, is that moment where I thought, wow, to make this stay and stick around and have longevity in this industry, I actually need to have some business messages. When you're running your business and growing a business, especially when it's a reflection of you as a person, you can never pour enough hours in the day into it. Are there disciplines that you've embraced from your learning, both in Antarctica and, and from your subsequent skill development, that, you, that you've really embedded into your daily life that, that you think other people could benefit from? One of the most important qualities for, for everyone, but particularly for leaders, is self-awareness. And one of the disciplines, and, and it was more for my mental health in Antarctica, but I started keeping a journal just to download. I had no one to talk to. So it was more, uh, oh, it was cathartic, like to get this emotion out. But what it helped me do was reflect on how I handled stuff and, and look back and think, wow, I didn't handle that really well or that, that really worked. Why was that? Because I had no one tapping me on the shoulder saying, yeah, you didn't get that right. So that discipline of reflection, and it's now part of my daily life. And how does it integrate into daily life, morning, night, both? Usually when it suits. Like I've tried to do it at a certain time of day and it just doesn't work because I travel so much. So it might be on a plane coming home, but it's usually after an event, after I've 
presented somewhere, I start thinking about the questions, the, the themes of the questions, and that's how the, my keynote has evolved as well over the years, that, gosh, seven or seven or eight years ago, there were a lot of questions around leading change, whereas in the last two or three years, I'm getting a lot more questions around collaboration, for example, is a, is a big topic, or mental health. So being able to include those messages in the, in the presentation, and that's only because I've reflected and, and I spend at least 30 minutes, 35 minutes, just reflecting and then thinking, how did I handle that? You know, how did I do that? Did I do well there? Could I have done that better? How did I handle that? Oh, I should have said that. I could have answered it that way. And is it always physically the same? You know, do you write in a, you know, the same journal? Do you do it on your computer? Do you, what do you, what works best for you? I always advise people to write. The, the only reason is if you write it, if you do it on a computer, you tend to censor yourself. You, you correct your grammar or, or the auto spell check does. And that defeats the purpose. The purpose of it is just to capture how you're feeling and thinking in that moment. So the rawness and the, the authenticity of at this moment, this is what I'm thinking about how I handle this. And it's actually capturing it there and then. But when you start typing, you tend to, you know, sanitise it, I guess, and correct it. And that's not the idea of, of a journal and not the idea of reflecting. So I just write notes and, and I used to write, um, which became the book, strangely enough, in Antarctica, not all, not all, all of it. Didn't get through the legal department of uh, the publisher. But So given that you'd been journaling most of the way through Antarctica, did you find the book easy to write? Yes. Strangely enough, the book was written, oh gosh, probably six or seven years. And people will say, gee, it took a long time from when you got back to write the book. But the book... I really wanted to make sure captured the the main interest for people. Like, what what are people asking about? What are they really? What do they really want? And I think the fact we hit the bestsellers list in three weeks tells me that it resonated. And I think what resonated was it, it's a practical. It's practical. It's pra- like there's people who do strategy way better than me. This is just very practical. This is what I did to build a team. This is what I did to look after myself. And the journal just gives it some authenticity and reality that people can go, yeah, I, f- I felt that. Like leadership can be lonely. It can be really lonely. And so to read something in my book that says, you know, my journal saying I wish I could go home, I'd pay any amount of money to go home, any leader can look at it and go, yeah, I've felt that loneliness as well. And and then the, the comfort of having a peer, like I was really great friends with the other station leader at Mawson Station. And even though we couldn't see each other, we could talk to each other on the phone. Having that peer support kept me sane. And so to include that in the book and have other leaders think, yeah, I need to improve my peer support. I need to get a couple of colleagues or peers around me, whether they're in my industry or not, but someone who's about my level in an organisation that I can have a coffee with and just go, oh, it's not just me. You know, I'm not on my own here. I have got someone who gets it, who just gets it. And so the book, yeah, was quite easy to write, only in that I already knew what was going to go in it. It was more a case of uh, working out what was going to stay out of it, what, what not to include because it didn't add any value or it was sort of off on a tangent. So tightening it up. <laughs> the really smart thing you've done next is to turn that content into an online course for people to be able to, to access. Yeah. Was that uh, the translation exercise, was that challenging? It was, only because it needed to have a, well, I felt it needed to have a natural progression. And so I had to think, well, how do I do a 12-week program where it's only a 15-minute video, you know, one, once a week for, for 12 weeks? How How do I have a natural progression so it's not disjointed so there's a a segue each week to the next week and that's where I thought right well the most important thing is you lead yourself so it's sort of it's structured around leading yourself and then leading your team then leading the business and so it progresses along for the 12 weeks but the hardest part was actually structuring because it's it could have gone I could have gone chronological 
and and you know which the book was more a chrono- chronological order of getting the job and then going to Antarctica, whereas that wouldn't have worked for the leadership program. So that was more about okay, what's the most critical skill a leader needs? Okay, week one, you need to lead yourself. You need to understand yourself, and so then it was working its way out for the next eleven weeks after that. So it was a very different format. So it kind of feels like you've done all these exciting things. What's in the future for you? How do you keep extending and growing? Yeah, it's hilarious, isn't it? And I still laugh. I I end up in these countries all around the world and I sort of get off a plane in Singapore and think, wow, you know, wow, (laughs) from an advertisement in a newspaper. And and I'm off to Shanghai in a couple of weeks and and my mum is still struggling to understand exactly what I do. (laughs) Well, and you seem so young, you know, like in terms of you you've you've done so much but and yet you know it's not like you're a 75 year old dispensing wisdom it just seems like there's so much more you know amazing things that you'll be able to do I think it's just that that whole regret what you did don't regret what you didn't do philosophy and I think if it all came crashing down tomorrow I'd, I'd find something else to do and I think that's the whole that's what keeps me going knowing that um having that security that it's okay if I if I do do something and I decide oh that even if we decide uh, one of the ideas is we might move to the US in a couple of years the whole family might move there and we'll launch my business over there if we do that and we get there and we decide oh we actually don't like this we're actually happier back in Australia we'll move home so what keeps me going is knowing I can have a crack at it have a go at it and if I don't like it I'll just change my mind and do another, make another decision. And I think for a lot of, particularly for women, we hold ourselves back because we're worried, oh, what if it doesn't work out? Or what if I fail? I won't go for that job because what if I get there and I'm not, well, change, make another decision. I, I think the only decision you ever make that's irreversible is having children because <laughs> that's forever. Uh, I think every other decision, particularly professionally, you can get there, you can start your own business. And if you get there and think, no, it's not what I thought, go back to another role you know, whatever it is, just regret what you did. Don't regret what you didn't do. Well, I've just loved your story. I think you're a great example of being prepared to back yourself, being prepared to be creative, being prepared to take a risk. Uh, and you're just such a wonderful role model. So thanks for spending some time with me. Oh, thank you. And thanks for having me. Success Stories was presented by the constantinvestor.com. Our theme music was written and performed by Broke Free. Broke Free.